One of my favorite characters in that movie and in all Star Wars movies is Finn. Finn is the nickname of FN2187. He's a stormtrooper, trained since birth to be loyal and obedient and serve the First Order, the dark side. But the evil ways of the First Order harass his conscience. He's conflicted. There's a battle that is being waged for his heart and for his identity. He wants to be free. He wants a new identity. And in a providential moment, he escapes and becomes a deserter. And the rest of his story is about discovering who he is. The upsides of that and the downsides of that. Watch this video clip. I'm a big deal in the resistance. And the response is, listen, big deal. You've got another problem. Finn does not know who he is. That's his problem. And without a clear sense of identity, he begins to make up his identity. He begins to think and speak and act in a way to prove his worth, to, uh, to fit in and be accepted, really all motivated by fear because he wants to ensure that with all of the circumstances and chaos that's going on, that he's safe. Finn's afraid, so he lies about himself to promote himself, to protect himself. Now, I, I love the character of Finn, and I love this scene because it reminds me of the goodness and the hope of the gospel. We don't have to generate our own goodness, our own worth, our own Identity in order to be acceptable. We don't have to pretend that we're somebody that we're not. We don't have to make it and we don't have to fake it. As followers of Jesus, our identity, our worth, our acceptance, our rightness isn't based on what we do, it's based on what God has done. And God continues to do for us and in us and through us. That is the hope held out to us in Christ. And the attractiveness of the gospel in our lives. This is what the Lord wants to encourage us in this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your amazing love. 
and that you knew us from before the foundations of the earth. You wanted us, so you created us in your image and likeness. And even when we rebelled against you and became a deserter of your presence and your ways, you did not forsake us. You didn't give up on us. You loved us and you pursued us. You found us in Christ Jesus. When we were still sinners, you gave Christ to die for us. And I thank you that in him, we have become the righteousness of God. So, Father, we ask now by the presence and ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in this place that you would help us see who you are and you would help us see who we are in Christ. We've got nothing to prove, nothing to strive for, that you've done it all. Help us to receive all that you've done for us and all that you're doing in and through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk righteousness. There's two kinds of righteousness. First, there's a religious righteousness. There we go. Boo. This is the righteousness um, of the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that's rooted in if you behave the right way and believe the right things, then you'll merit or earn being in a right relationship with God. It's it's man-centered righteousness because it's a righteousness based upon what we do. It's a self-manufactured righteousness. You see that? Okay. Double thumbs down. Shake your head. Boo. Okay. Second, there's a righteousness that comes from God. Thumbs up. Yeah. All right. This is the righteousness of Christ. And it's a result. It's a result of belonging to Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to align our belief and our behavior with Christ. Do you see the difference? One is a righteousness that we conjure up. The other is a righteousness that is a free gift. One is a righteousness that we have to always work hard habitually to maintain. The other is a righteousness that the Holy Spirit works in us to habitually grow and maintain. I nerded out a little bit this week. I read the preface of Martin Luther's work on the letter to the Galatians. It's really good. Um, And if you want to read that, I would highly encourage it. But here's the highlight of the preface. Martin Luther says, There's a righteousness from God that we do not merit or earn, but receive passively like the ground receives the rain. Amen. Let's go to communion. Right? Like, isn't that beautiful? It's a righteousness that doesn't come from me, but is graciously given to me. Y'all, this is the gospel. I was in bondage to sin. I was under the condemnation of the law that I could never keep no matter how hard I tried. But Christ died for me to set me free. And I deserted the kingdom of darkness and I've been accepted into the kingdom of God. 
And that means that I have a new identity, that the old is gone and the new has come. And in Christ, I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son. I've been brought out of darkness into light. I've been brought out of death into life, out of the dark side, into the kingdom of the Son the Father loves, out of sin into righteousness. I mean, if you're not saying hallelujah in your heart, I don't know. God has graciously, this is the promise through the prophet of prophet Isaiah. God has graciously removed the old, tattered, filthy rags and attitudes and behaviors and patterns of rebellion. He's removed them. That was not planned. (laughs) He's removed them. And he has clothed us in the dazzling white robe of the righteousness of Christ. And it is no longer I who am the big deal. It's Jesus. He's the big deal. Capital B, capital D. Read Colossians 1. He's the big deal. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. I can't believe I'm about to preach in an undershirt. Um, <laughs> open, open your Bibles to Galatians 5. We're going to look at um, 15, uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Um, in your blue Bibles, that's on page 975. Uh, here's the big idea this morning. The way that we enter the Christian life is the same way that we continue to grow and mature in the Christian life. Same way. We're saved by grace through faith, and we're sanctified by grace through faith. And that's the focus of this passage, is our desperate need for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that as we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to keep us clinging to him and him clinging to us and communicating all the presence and power and promises of Christ in our lives that we might receive and enjoy for God's glory and our transformation in Christ-likeness. And Paul begins in verses 16 and 17 in a very interesting way, he reengages our problem that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to save ourselves or to grow in holiness and righteousness ourselves. And he begins with the battle that rages within us. Look at verses 16 and 17. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. You see the battle? Okay, let's be honest. You feel the battle? That's real. That's real. There are two natures at work in the life of every believer. There's an old nature or the sinful nature, and there's a new nature or the spiritual nature. Bear with me here for a second, because this is important. The sinful nature 
is a translation of the Greek word sarx. And a lot of translations, uh, it's translated as flesh. Okay, flesh. And flesh in the New Testament doesn't refer to um, our epidermis. Big word. Seniors, that might be in your SAT. Just saying. Flesh doesn't refer to our physical bodies or skin, but to our sin-infected opposition to God. That's what the flesh means. Our old nature, our sinful nature is our broken, corrupt, hardened heart that's trapped in rebellion against God and against his design. Okay, double thumbs down for flesh. Like, boo. That's not who God created us to be. But is what has happened as a result of sin. Now, contrary to the sinful nature is the spiritual nature, which translated from the Greek is pneuma. Spirit, breath, right? It's, it's God uh, creates man from the dust of the earth, and he's not just a physical creation. God breathes the breath of life into him. And so what we see here is that in Christ, God has breathed once again his spirit, his breath, his life into us. Our spirit in the New Testament, refers to our new nature, which every born-again follower of Jesus Christ receives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit here is our new, redeemed, soft heart that's responsive to God in his ways. And what Paul is saying is that these two natures, the flesh and the Spirit, are in sharp opposition to one another. They're at war against one another within every believer and that this conflict, this battle that is being waged for our hearts every single day shapes and influences our character and our behavior. So it's a real war that has real consequences. Um, Y'all know that battle? Y'all feel that battle? That battle wear you out too. Um, I've gotten to know a really, really cool guy named Mr. Wise, and uh, Mr. Wise is—he's—he's um, he's amazing, and his story is amazing. I wish I could just tell you his story, but maybe he'll tell you his story someday. But he um, teaches driver's ed in Alamo Heights, and. I have a child that I just won't name for the sake of anonymity from the pulpit. But he has this battle going on in that he really or she really wants to drive, really wants to drive, and wants to have all the benefits of driving, but is absolutely terrified to get in the car and doesn't feel safe. And so hasn't even been willing to take driver's ed yet. And so, God bless Mr. Wise. Mr. Wise comes alongside, and he helps people slowly, patiently, lovingly get over some of the holdups, the hang-ups, the fears, and move into the desires, the true desires of the heart. And he came over one Saturday a couple weeks ago, and he, uh, he shared this letter with uh, one of my offspring. And uh, it's titled, The Fight of Two Wolves Within You. Some of you have probably heard this. 
An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight's going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He is angry. Envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, Grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather simply replied, Whichever one you feed. In verse 17, Paul says, The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each, what, each other. So, which one wins? The flesh or the spirit? Let's look at verses 19 through 21. These are the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. In order to help us understand the battle that's being waged within us, Paul further describes the two opposing factions. The sinful nature rejects the free gift of Christ's righteousness and continues to seek its own. The sinful nature thinks it's a big deal. And the motive of the sinful nature, the motive of the flesh is fear that manifests in a lack of trust in the goodness and grace of God that's coupled with an insistence to protect and guard that sense of self and self-righteousness through morality and performance and idolatry. Here are the self-righteous attitudes and sinful actions of the flesh. There are three words in verse 19 having to do with the works of the flesh in the area of sexuality. Sexual immorality, pornea is the Greek word, which is sexual intercourse between any unmarried people. Impurity, which is unnatural sexual practices in relationships that are contrary to God's design for the gift of sex and the covenant of marriage between a male and a female. And debauchery, another good word, SAT word only, which is uncontrolled sexuality marked by lustful, self-serving ambition. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Self-righteousness. Being a big deal motivated by our flesh leads to sin and results in disordered sexuality. There are two words in verse 20 having to do with worship. Idolatry, which refers to making people, places, and things the object of our desire and affection. 
And uh, a word that is probably best, I'm not sure it's best translated witchcraft, but it's essentially faking the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And, and, and self-righteousness, depending on ourselves, um, defining our own identity leads to sin that results in disordered relationship with God, disordered worship. In verses 21 and 22, there are eight words that describe how our self-righteousness leads to sin that destroys relationships. The first four of these are destructive attitudes, okay? Selfish ambition, which is uh, comparison that leads to competition and condescension. Envy, which is a desire to possess what others have and we don't. Jealousy, which is an anxious eagerness to be like somebody that you're not. And hatred, a resentment or a bitterness in the heart that leads to an adversarial attitude or or outright hostility to diminish another in a manner that elevates yourself. Destructive attitudes that really cause havoc in relationships. The next four describe the results, the havoc that these destructive attitudes cause. Discord, you see that one? The result of perpetual disagreement that comes from incessantly picking, complaining, and arguing. Fits of rage, which is unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment turned outward. Dissension, which refers to the escalation of unresolved conflict that leads to division. And factions, which are the intentional organization of dissension, pitting one group against the other. Finally, there's two words that are linked together to refer really to substance abuse. Um, Drunken orgies, those aren't two different things in the Greek. That's actually one thing. And it refers to an over-the-top commitment to pleasure-creating substances that not only hurt ourselves, but hurt those around us. Okay? So what Paul is, is, this this is not an exhaustive list. I've come up with more. (laughs) But it's descriptive. And what Paul is trying to help us see is that when we live by the flesh, when we live motivated and controlled and energized by our self-righteousness, it leads to sin and results in disordered, divided, and even destroyed relationships. The deeds of the flesh. The fruits of the flesh. Double thumbs down. Boo. Now, the good news is that that's not who we are. And there's another wolf in this fight. He's the holy wolf. Said no one ever from the pulpit. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit. All right, look at verses 22 through 23. Okay, contrasted 
with the fruit of the flesh is the fruit of the spirit. Uh, look, the, the fruit of the flesh is done by our personal self-effort. The fruit of the spirit is produced by God in and through those who belong to him through faith in Christ Jesus. All right? So the fruits of the spirit are evidence of Christ's presence in our life. That's really helpful to me because when I first started to engage this understanding of the war that's waged within me, it became very demoralizing to me because I kept thinking, gosh, I don't do the things that I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do and I'll never figure it out and I'll never get it up, I'll never get it right and I might as well just give up. But actually, that's a wrong way of looking at it. The fact that there is this battle within us means that I no longer just have a sinful nature, but that Jesus has stepped out of heaven and into my heart. And by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, he is wreaking havoc against my sin. He is crucifying my flesh, and he is conforming me more and more into his likeness. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is what initiates the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord and he wins. He is winning. He will win. Um, oh gosh, here goes Matt with another example from his orange tree in his backyard. Yes, it's been a while. But I'm not giving up on that thing. So, here's where we are. You know, I planted these orange trees about five years ago. And they really just blossomed and fruited the first year. And ever since then, down and to the left. Man, it's, or down and to the right. Yeah, it's been really bad. And so I decided, I, I've, I've got to get some help. I do not know how to be a good orange tree grower by myself. So, uh, I got a little help from someone in the congregation, and I got a little help from someone from without the congregation. She was a landscape architect. I won't tell you which was more helpful. They were both helpful. But what I began to do, uh, following the encouragement and instruction, was uh, removing rocks from around the bases of these two orange trees. And uh, pulling out all the weeds, tilling up the soil, putting new fertilizer down, putting soaker hoses around the trees, and praying. <laughs> now, I just, I just participated, right? I don't make orange trees grow, and I certainly don't make oranges. I do not have that capacity. I do have the capacity to participate in what an orange tree does, and a healthy orange tree produces healthy oranges. And y'all, I got to tell you, I'm about a month away from eating some really juicy oranges. I'm super excited. Now, in the same way, we don't produce spiritual fruit in our lives. God produces the spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, we need one another. We need to get help from one another, right? Following Jesus is a team sport. Growing in Christ and Christ-likeness is never intended to be a solitary endeavor. It wasn't for Jesus and his disciples. It isn't for us today. 
And, and we need to cultivate the soil of our lives. How do we cultivate the soil of our lives? Acknowledging the ways that we fall short, the rocks in our lives that hold back and hold out the goodness and provision of God in our lives, confessing our sin, and not just acknowledging it, but allowing the Lord to take it and remove it from our garden as far as the east is from the west, from our heart as far as the east is from the west, and to fertilize our hearts and our lives with the soil of the word, the word of, the, of, of, of God, which is the power not only to salvation, but to sanctification, and to water our hearts through worship and prayer. The fruit in our lives is produced by the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells every born-again believer in Christ Jesus. Now, let's look at what they are, because these are really good. Double thumbs up. Yeah, let's go. This is what you are made for. This is who you are. In Christ, this is the life that the Holy Spirit delivers, sustains, and multiplies in you and through you. This is good stuff. This is the reordered, spiritually aligned attitudes and actions that are pleasing to God, that God does on our behalf. Ready? Love. Agape. To serve a person for their intrinsic value, not for what they bring you. To care for them, to support them, to sacrifice them for them because of the dignity that they possess in Christ. This is what we say when we renew our baptismal vows. I will serve the dignity of Christ in every human being. That's the heart of love because it's the heart of God. Greater love has no one than this than he who gives up his life for his friends. Love in its essence is the nature of God. Love in its essence is our new nature in Christ. And love considers the benefit of the other before it's ourselves. Love says, God's a big deal and you're a big deal. And I'm going to live in grateful response to the love that Christ gave for me and put in me so that I have all the love in my heart that I need to love God and love my neighbor as myself. Because the Holy Spirit is the source of that love. Joy. Delighting in God and the things of God based on who God is and what God does for the glory of his name. He's a big deal and he gets to be a big deal. He gets to promote his big dealness. When I lose or gain the things this world has to offer, I still have a deep down soul satisfaction which cannot be shaken or destroyed because it rests on who I am in Christ and all that I have in him. Not on who I am or what I have in this world or as the world defines it. That's joy. Peace. We've talked about this over the last several months. Shalom. It's a restoration of wholeness with God, a return to oneness, to completeness with God, with ourselves, and with one another, the way that God designed it, the way that he intended our relationship with him and one another to be, shalom. And, and this completely transcends understanding. It's undefinable with our own mind or our own words, but we feel it every now and then in the presence of worship or in the midst of a big decision when we just know. 
We know that we know that we know. We can't explain it. It's maybe incomprehensible. Maybe it defies all the circumstances, but we know that we have the peace of God which transcends all understanding and something is right and it moves us to action. The Spirit does that. Patience. A posture or surrender to the trustworthiness and timing of God. Oftentimes we think, oh boy, I just need more patience. Honestly, that's not what we need. Actually, what we need to do is surrender control to the love of God. Patience is not trying to control a situation. It's about surrendering to the will of God, knowing that his way is better than our way. His timing is better than our timing. Kindness. All right. You know the bumper sticker? Practice random acts of kindness and senseless beauty. No. So close. As followers, we practice intentional acts of kindness in ways that reflect the beauty of God. That's what the Spirit does in and through us. We're kind. We're kind to one another. It's not, it's not morality, be nice, or else. It's the work of the presence of God within us, his loving kindness that he has for us, that he puts in us for one another. Faithfulness. Doing what we say and saying what we do. Not on our own, not as our own compass or our own rule, but, you know, 1990s, WWJD bracelet. Our faithfulness is connected to Jesus within us. Because, look, here's the rest of the story. Jesus didn't just step out of heaven to get us out of hell. Y'all know that's like only 50% of the gospel, right? The rest of the story is that he stepped out of heaven to get into our life, to live his life in us and through us, here and now and for all eternity. So faithfulness is just about allowing Jesus to lead our lives, putting his words into practice, doing what he says, and finding that that satisfies the longing of our souls and actually brings fullness of life. Gentleness, soft, humble response, respecting another person, moving them in a godly direction at a rate and with the pressure they can handle. That's what gentleness is. Moving someone in a godly direction at a rate with the pressure they can handle. That's what a shepherd does. You've seen a shepherd's crook? Okay. How does a shepherd use that crook? Gently. And sometimes that shepherd uses the uh, open end of the crook to gently pull his sheep back into the fold where it's protected and can be fed. And sometimes a shepherd turns the other end and pushes that sheep from behind to get it to a meal or to get it back into community or to get it away from danger. Gentleness and a Godward direction and a rate and with a pressure someone can handle. Self-control, last one. I think this is focusing on the best over the good, the important over the urgent, delaying gratification, doing all things in moderation, and even abstaining. Because just because it's good doesn't mean it's beneficial. In Matthew 7, Jesus says it this way. By their fruit, you will recognize them. 
Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. What's the point? In Christ, we're good trees. And in us, Christ bears good fruit. What does the fruit of Christ look like in our lives? Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what Jesus looks like. That's who we are and how the Holy Spirit is helping us live in a manner consistent with our new identity, clothed in the dazzling white undershirt of Christ's (laughs) righteousness, right? So here's what it looks like. As we come to the Lord at his table, um, it, it just simply means the opportunity to hold out our hands and receive the bread, to take the cup and dip the bread in the cup and, and receive the spiritual presence of the body and blood of Christ to nourish us by his grace in our faith, confessing our need and desire for more of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. And so we come saying, Lord, I'm not a big deal but you are. And so come, grow me, nourish me, strengthen me, make your presence and promises and power real in my life today and this week. Amen. Father, we thank you for um, how much you love and care for us what a good Abba you are and how awesome it is to be your sons and daughters in Christ, to be members of your household and have a place at your table and be, Lord, just recipients of every provision that we need for goodness and godliness that's glorifying to you. And so we do now humble ourselves, Lord, and just confess our need of you, confess the ways we've fallen short, and yet confess that there's nothing that we've done that would make you love us less. And that you just love us because you love us because you love us. And now as we come around your table, communicate that love and all the fruits of your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name.